This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 287 of the program. Today is Friday, April 23rd, and before we get started, I want to take some time to thank all of the folks who make the show possible. All of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which either signed up for the very first time to support us this week or increased the monthly pledge that they were already giving us, and that includes the great Jamie Pitts, John J. Root, Sarah Conde and Teresa. Thank you all so much. Uh, I truly appreciate all of you. Um, if you also want to support the show, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com slash support, patreon.com slash humanistreport, or by clicking join underneath any one of our YouTube videos. Additionally, you can watch our content on Means TV. That helps to support the show. And you could subscribe on twitch.tv slash humanistreport. If you want to get some, you know, alternative content, less, uh, intense when it comes to politics uh you know not necessarily as in-depth more light-hearted but still i think pretty fun and valuable uh if not just to let off a little bit of steam so uh this week we have a great episode for you we'll talk about the wave of anti-protest laws emerging in the country and specifically we will look at florida's law in particular we'll discuss the outcome of the Derek chauvin trial why it's actually an anomaly and we'll also look at the disgusting reactions from right-wing reactionaries and that includes tucker carlson's full-on meltdown as well as dave rubin's idiotic reverse racism argument and speaking of right-wing reactionaries my pillow ceo mike lindell launched a social media website and during a 48-hour telethon to promote it he was pranked and it was hilarious so we talk about that also on the program george w bush an unrepentant war criminal calls for compassion in american society yeah imagine that we'll talk about the three democrats blocking legislation that would expand unionization and we'll get a behind the scenes look at joe manchin and kirsten cinema chumming it up with lobbyists at a closed door event and we'll also hear kirsten cinema admit that she is beholden to her corporate donors in a meeting with the Arizona Chamber of Commerce. You're not going to want to miss that. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today's program. I hope you all enjoy what I have in store for you. Let's get to it. Well, after 10 hours of deliberation, the jury has found Derek Chauvin guilty on all three counts. Here's the moment when it happened. State of Minnesota, County of Hennepin, District Court, 4th Judicial District, State of Minnesota Plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin, Defendant. Verdict, Count 1, Court File Number 27, CR 2012646. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to Count 1, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.44 p.m. Signed juror four person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count two. We the jury in the above entitled matter as to count two, third degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021 at 1.45 p.m. Signed by jury four person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count three. We the jury in the above entitled matter as to count three, second degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk 
find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April 2021 at 1.45 p.m. Jury four person 019. Now I want to cut to uh, some live reactions. Now I, it's kind of hard to film because I'm still emotional from from seeing the verdict, but I just want to read from the New York Times here. So since he's been found guilty, Mr. Chauvin faces up to 40 years in prison when he is sentenced in the coming weeks, but is likely to receive far less time. The presumptive sentence for second-degree murder is 12.5 years, according to Minnesota sentencing guidelines, although the state has asked for a higher sentence. Now I will be perfectly honest. I was not expecting him to be found guilty. Um, at most, I thought maybe on the manslaughter charge, but uh, he was found guilty on all three accounts, and I am pleasantly surprised. Um, even if we all saw the video where this man was kneeling on George Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes, still in America with our racist criminal justice and judicial system, I wasn't expecting even an extreme circumstance like that with that much evidence that we can see to lead to a guilty verdict but i'm i'm happy about this it's nice to see that george floyd's family is going to have some justice they're going to see the man who murdered george floyd go to jail go to prison and that's that's really good but of course needless to say this doesn't mean that the issue is resolved while there's justice in the sense that derek chauvin will be going to prison this system of injustice that led to him dying in the first place has to be dismantled. That's the thing. I don't want people to take away from this. Oh, well, that's it. We won. We did not win yet. The fight continues. There is justice in this case. But the system itself that led to George Floyd's murder in the first place, that has got to be dismantled. And that is one main thing that I really want folks to take away from this. We should never have to be in this position where we're begging for justice for someone who is murdered by a racist cop. That shouldn't happen at all. George Floyd will never be here again. He'll never take another breath. And that in and of itself is heartbreaking. And so we have to make sure that we fight to stop this, dismantle the system that leads to police brutality and police-sanctioned murder, state-sanctioned murders by police officers against black Americans. But for now, this is... Definitely good news. Uh, cause for celebration. Again, still reacting to this. Uh, we just got the verdict like five minutes ago as I record this, and I'm a little bit uh, discombobulated. I'm, I'm shocked, to be to be frank. I, I'm actually genuinely shocked. Uh, but more details will follow. It's been uh, three weeks of trials. Uh, if you've been following it, it's been gut-wrenching. It's been emotional. Uh, but now it has resulted in... Derek Chauvin going to prison. Uh, sentencing will uh, come shortly. <sighs> Trying to collect my thoughts here. Um, wow. Just, yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's anything else to really say about this. Um, Derek Chauvin is going to prison. Rightfully so. 
Just a bit of a forewarning before we even talk about what the title says we're going to be talking about. This video is going to be very depressing. This video will make you lose faith in humanity. So if you're in a good mood, I would advise you to turn away. I mean, I appreciate the fact that you clicked on this video. Thank you for watching. But this is one of those where if you don't have to see it, then um, don't. Because this is... Um, some next level moral depravity that we're going to be examining here, folks. And even though it's not necessarily surprising for the far right to have a very ridiculous meltdown to the conviction news about Derek Chauvin, uh, what they say here is truly just disturbing. Um, so at the time that I filmed this, Tucker Carlson hasn't yet said anything about this uh, because his show hasn't aired. But the night before we got the verdict, Tucker Carlson literally accused the media of lynching Derek Chauvin. Let me repeat that. The man who murdered someone, we all saw the video footage of him kneeling on George Floyd's neck for nine minutes. He's angry that the media is lynching that individual. He's not necessarily angry that George Floyd was murdered, he's mad at the media's treatment of Derek Chauvin. That's just a little bit of a hint as to what we can expect. So we're going to work our way from bad to Nazi. <laughs> and when I say that, we'll start with the more right-wing, uh, center-right takes, and then we're going to see the worst of the worst, which is shocking, even from an individual like me. Who knows what to expect from these ghouls? So, first and foremost, I want to share this clip from Newsmax TV because uh, they very clearly don't believe that justice was served. Yeah, okay. no, it's it, it, it's pressure on the scale, right? I mean, this they, they say justice is blind. I don't think it was blind in this case at all. I think you had political pressure. I think you had pressure from all these uh, activist groups uh, going into all this. And I think at the end of the day, people say, you know what? If we acquit this guy, this city is going to burn to the ground. It is going to burn to the ground. So you had a jury that said, you know what? We're going to have to sacrifice this guy to the mob, and that's exactly what I think happened today. Derek Chauvin was sacrificed to the mob. This imbecile wants you to not believe your own eyes. You saw the video of Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes, and he's saying, oh, well, you know what? The jury, they're actually irrational. They probably know that Derek Chauvin is innocent, but they only convicted him because they knew that there would be backlash if they didn't. I mean, you're just a moron. You're, you're sick in the head. I don't know the name of that Newsmax host, but that individual is sick. You're a sick fuck. That's disgusting. We all saw the fucking video of Derek Chauvin commit an act of murder in broad daylight, and you're saying that the only reason why the jury would convict that individual who we saw murder a man is because they're worried about the mob? That uh, Derek Chauvin was sacrificed to the mob? Are you a fucking moron? Do you eat paint chips for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? What is wrong with you? I think we all know what's wrong with him. That man is racist. And you don't care that that racist cop killed a black man in broad daylight. You're more mad that he's getting punished for said murder. You're telling on yourself... Now, uh, going to Steven Crowder, he responded to a tweet from Martin Luther King Jr. III, which says, Today, justice was served for the Floyd family, but we still live in a nation clothed in injustice. True justice for black Americans can only come through a complete revolution of values. We need an overhaul of systems deeply rooted in racism. Hashtag justice for George Floyd. Uh, to which Crowder responded, saying, Of course, there was going to be a pivot. Expect more police to quit in the coming weeks. First of all, if more cops quit 
in protest of justice being served in this one instance? Good. Second of all, this isn't a pivot. There was justice in this one case, but the fact that our system even led to a man being murdered in broad daylight in the first place, we still have to dismantle that system. So this isn't a pivot, and you're just trying to find a reason to take issue with what they're saying, but it's perfectly reasonable. But for those of you who missed it, uh, Stephen Crowder already concluded that Derek Chauvin was innocent because he had uh, conducted his own experiment on his channel where he reenacted the uh, infamous moment where George Floyd was murdered. And so according to him, you know, uh, Derek Chauvin is innocent. Extremely stupid. Uh, ben Shapiro responded to Don Lemon of CNN saying justice was served. And he says, and we all know he would never have said this had the reverse verdict been reached. Yeah, maybe because in that instance somebody would have gotten away with murder and justice would not have been served. I, it's like they're being purposefully obtuse because they're angry that for once, a racist cop who murdered a black man is going to go to prison for that. Just admit that. Just be honest. Some of the folks here are honest. Uh, others are scoffing at people celebrating at this surprising uh, moment of justice for George Floyd. Michael Tracy, who I don't know what his political ideology is, but he argues now rushing outside to dance in the streets and celebrate the carceral power of the state. Yes, Michael, because that's exactly why people are celebrating. They're not celebrating because for once, justice was served when a cop murdered someone. They're celebrating because they just, they love big daddy government. Very, very brilliant take there, Michael Tracy. You are a fucking moron, Michael Tracy. Now, uh, Caitlin Bennett, who shit herself once, says, And now we know our country will not be able to withstand the threat of the mob when asked to protect our innocence. Our justice system means nothing anymore. Hashtag Derek Chauvin. Hey, Caitlin, ask yourself why there was a mob to begin with. The mob responded because they saw somebody get murdered. Were you not outraged when you saw that video? Did it not gen up any emotions whatsoever? I mean, I'm sure that she had some reaction to it. Maybe she was happy that uh, the cop was uh, kneeling on George Floyd's neck. I don't know. I can't even speculate about the twisted minds of these fuckwits. But ju justice to them would be cops being able to kill black Americans and getting away with it. By this logic, if there wasn't a mob, then there would have been no conviction. It's as if the video where we all saw Derek Chauvin murder George Floyd didn't exist. It's only because of the mob, the quote-unquote mob, that led to this conviction. The jury was biased. Unbelievable. Now, if you thought that all of those takes were bad, we are going for the nuclear take. This is the worst of the worst, and this is... I don't, I don't know how to describe it. We'll just read it together. This is from Cassandra Fairbanks who argues, poor Chauvin, this is awful. He is a political prisoner. Nobody can change my mind on this. Just awful. Somebody then responded saying, Cassandra, he fucking murdered a man. What the fuck is wrong with you? She then responded saying, nothing of value was lost. And no, he didn't. I'm going to repeat that. In response to a murder, Cassandra Fairbanks just said, nothing of value was lost. Okay, at least you're being honest, but um, that's, that's some Nazi shit right there.
That is straight up Nazi shit. So uh, this is what I meant at the beginning of the video when I said the takes we're going to hear, they're not just hot takes. These are takes that really speak to the sickness of these folks who are angry at the fact that justice in this one instance was actually served. It's not like the entire racist criminal justice and judicial system itself is going to be dismantled as a result of this guilty verdict. But in this one instance, in this one time, the bad guy's going to go to prison. The cop who murdered an unarmed black man is going to go to prison. And they're mad about that. Yeah. Uh, this is them telling on themselves. And it's, it's disgusting, but it's not shocking. It's not shocking in the slightest. Well, the new Tucker Carlson reaction video just dropped, and we're going to see him react to the verdict of Derek Chauvin. Now, he brought on a former police officer, and uh, this police officer proceeded to explain what I think is pretty obvious, that Derek Chauvin very obviously and clearly used excessive force. And since he wasn't telling Tucker Carlson what he wanted to hear, Tucker then proceeded to throw a tizzy fit, the likes of which we haven't seen, I think, ever from him. And this got extremely awkward and a little bit creepy, to be honest. Take a look. The scene. I, I just think that it was excessive yeah, and well, it shouldn't happen. And, and what I'd like the, to see, the guy more, who did it looks like he's going to spend thing. the rest of his life in prison. So I'm kind of more worried about the rest of the country, which, thanks to police inaction, in case you haven't noticed, is like boarded up. <laughs> so that's more my concern. Well, but I appreciate you coming let, on. Let, Ed Gavin, thank let, you. Let, nope, done. Thank you. That was really weird. <laughs> I don't even know what that was. And he started just like rambling incoherently towards the end there. Police in action, uh, like all this weird thing. What's wrong with you? Like you can tell Tucker Carlson is genuinely becoming unhinged. And he didn't like that his guest wouldn't just validate his existing biases. You see, when you go on Tucker Carlson's program, there's this implicit agreement that you are not going to say something that Tucker Carlson doesn't want you to say. Otherwise, he might be an asshole to you, or more importantly, you might not get that invitation back, and you really want to make sure that you maintain a friendly relationship with Tucker Carlson once you begin to uh, build up rapport, because uh, he has the most popular news show in America. So, uh, that former police officer broke the cardinal rule of not telling T uh, Tucker Carlson exactly what he wanted to hear. And since he didn't tell Tucker Carlson what he wanted to hear, Tucker Carlson then proceeded to censor him. Literally kick him off his show. Wait, I thought that you were the guy who was pro-free speech, against censorship, and yet you censor your own guest like an authoritarian little prick? Interesting. Furthermore, by Tucker Carlson's standards of what censorship is, I think I'm actually literally being censored because I haven't been invited to go on Tucker Carlson's program yet. Um, now, Tucker adds uh, that it looks like Derek Chauvin's going to spend the rest of his life in prison, and he says this as if we should feel sympathy towards Derek Chauvin, but zero sympathy towards George Floyd. I mean, if given the choice between death and living albeit in prison don't you think that most people would opt to live but in prison what about the sympathy for george floyd derek chauvin took his life so he might spend the rest of his life behind bars he might not 
But regardless, the outcome of dying, getting murdered, is worse than spending your life in prison. So forgive me for not feeling sympathy for a cop that chose to kneel on a man's neck for almost nine minutes. Tucker Carlson is a sick, sick fuck. And that weird laugh that he did, that wasn't the first time because when he was responding to Ted Lieu, who criticized him for his racist uh, Great Replacement conspiracy theory, uh, he did that same bizarre fake laugh again. Dear Scott Perry, native-born Americans like you are no more American and no less American than an immigrant like me. Good point. We agree with that. And then he said this. And with every passing year, there will be more people who look like me in the United States. You can't stop it. So take your racist replacement theory and shove it. In other words, you're being replaced and there's nothing you can do about it. So shut up. <laughs> the man is becoming unraveled and more unhinged by the day. It's a... Uh... <laughs> It's entertaining at a minimum, I'll say that. But, you know, uh, in that same episode, the original episode where he was reacting to the Derek Chauvin verdict, he did bring on a guest who absolutely validated every single thing that he wanted to hear. Candace Owens. And usually I'd say, you know, Fox News tries to seek out gay and black people who will come on as guests and attack their own communities. But for Tucker Carlson, he doesn't even really worry about that. Like, he just says... What usually they don't want to say because they don't want to appear racist. You know, usually they'll have a black person make a racist point for them. So that way they have plausible deniability when they're accused of racism. Uh, but Tucker Carlson doesn't really worry about that. Nonetheless, he brought on Candace Owens to bolster his point about how this verdict is just absolutely unjust and egregious, which, I mean, maybe they've seen a different video than the one that we saw. Uh, nonetheless, Candace Owens is then going to proceed to make a lot of very, very silly arguments that will definitely make you lose IQ points. So turn away now if you don't want that to happen. Here you have to consider a murder case through the lens of politics. When you get to that point, haven't you already given up civilization? Well, that's correct. And what we're really seeing is mob justice. And, and that's really what happened with this entire trial. This was not a trial about George Floyd or Derek Chauvin. This was a trial about whether right. the media uh, was powerful enough to create a simulation and decide upon a narrative absent any facts, whether it was powerful enough to repeat showing and talking about a nine minute clip that came from somebody's cell phone without adding any context, without showing the full, you know, the full police video, which they could have released. They refused to release the full body cam, which would have added more clarity um, to the fact that the media was lying. You know, the media came out. Let's not forget this, Tucker. The media came out and told us that this was a man who was just getting his life together. He was a good, you know, good member of society. And he got mixed up because a racist white police officer had it out for him and, and killed him. All of that fell apart. All of the facts came out and all of that fell apart. We now know, of course, that he had enough fentanyl in him. It was three times the lethal dosage, three times lethal dosage in him when he died. But nobody cares because the media was successful and putting out a narrative and they kept hitting that narrative. And the reason why the Democrats are happy is because they realize, of course, the media supports them and now means the Democrats can get whatever they want because they can create a narrative and then they can treat people like pawns and get them to basically say, if we don't get what we want, we will riot, we will loot, we will send these people out like soldiers to destroy your neighborhoods. And that is exactly what has happened. That has been the determination of this trial. The media and the Democrats now have enough power to bully, to bully and to lie to and to create propaganda and to successfully win. And that is what happened. And they are celebrating that win today.
This was not a fair trial. Only one side. No person can say this was a fair trial. You just got to take three steps back and acknowledge that only one side behaves this way. I mean, yeah. a, a jury in 1995 concluded that O.J. Simpson, despite DNA evidence, hadn't murdered two people and there were no riots. But more to the point, there are a lot of people sitting behind Trump voters sitting behind bars right now have been for months charged effectively with trespassing. We're not speculating. We've seen the charges. No Republican in the Congress stands up for them. Nobody mentions that nobody, you know, is for prison reform when it's their political enemies. That's not equal justice, but nobody says it. Why is that? Because we have two pandemics going on right now. There's a pandemic of ignorance in this country, and that is only allowed to fly because we also have a pandemic of cowardice in this country. Okay, so we have people that are, are purposefully putting out a bunch of ignorant, ignorant claims. And then we have people that are too cowardly to stand up and say, you know what, this is wrong. There has been so much that has been going on in this country that is wrong. You talk about it. I talk about it. But we do not have people that are sitting in Congress that are willing to take this fight where it needs to be taken. By the way, you bring up Maxine Waters inciting violence. I'm so old, Tucker. I remember when a man said march peacefully and patriotically to the Capitol and that was considered an insight to violence, right? That was like, oh my God, stop the press, get this person disappeared from social media because he is calling for violence. Look at what Maxine Waters says. No one, no one in the media is condemning these and condemning these remarks. That same media that condemned, condemned Trump and his supporters for weeks on end is now defending Maxine Waters. And we both know this is not the first time that Maxine Waters has incited violence. Don't forget, rush down. If you see a Trump supporter, you got to rush them down in the restaurants. They're allowed to do this. They play by a different set of rules, but it's because we allow them to play with that different set of rules. <sighs> I don't know where to begin, but um, let's take it from the top. First of all, I think it's very obvious that they didn't watch the trial because if you actually tuned into the trial, I think that the prosecution very persuasively argued that it was obvious that George Floyd died because there was a knee on his neck for almost nine minutes. Not that we even needed that argument because we all saw the video, but these idiots want you to not believe your lying eyes. I know that you saw a man kneeling on a human being's neck for almost nine minutes. I get that. I know what it looks like. But actually, George Floyd's death was George Floyd's fault because according to us, well, he was a bad person and maybe it was a fentanyl overdose, which is weird because if you're going to overdose on fentanyl, it's really convenient for Derek Chauvin that it happened within that window when the knee was on George Floyd's neck. So, uh, of course, that's idiotic. Nobody believes this. But these fools don't think that there should be any penalty for police officers who murder black americans they think that they should be able to get away with it with impunity now candace owens what she tried to do was flip it rather than feeling sympathy for george floyd she wanted you to think you know what this is the man who should actually be on trial he didn't die because there was a foot on his neck he died because it was his own fault and you know what the media assisted with this false narrative they tried to make it seem as if he was this good guy who was getting his life back on track but really he was a bad person except this is what mental gymnastics looks like this is where you disregard any conservative who claims to be a small government conservative but says this kind of thing this is a bootlicker argument here i don't give a flying fuck if George Floyd was the worst person on the face of the planet, do you honestly believe that one police officer can unilaterally be the judge, jury, and the executioner on individuals that they deem bad in society? Do you not believe in due process? I mean, you're the uh, 
rule of law folks, aren't you? So you honestly think that a just society would allow folks to just kill people who they deem bad? See, it's obvious what she's doing. She's flipping it. So we're not thinking about what Derek Chauvin did. We're thinking about how bad George Floyd was. Now, moving on, Candace Owens then brought up the false equivalences, and she outright lied about Maxine Waters' stance, and she claimed that, you know, the left, they're not angry that Maxine Waters incites violence basically on the regular. I mean, she said we should harass Trump supporters. Now, if you actually go back and look at specifically what Maxine Waters said and take a look at the context around the conversation that she was having, so when Donald Trump instituted his zero-tolerance anti-immigration policy where families were separated, uh, there were DSA activists that showed up and they disrupted the meals that uh, Trump administration officials were having, individuals like Kirsten uh, Nielsen. And there was this conversation at the time about whether or not it's justifiable for activists to disrupt the private lives of politicians who are doing terrible things. And Maxine Waters, being a politician herself, knowing that this could easily be turned on her, said, yes, you should. You should absolutely confront Trump administration officials who are doing crimes against humanity. Now, I have no idea if Maxine Waters would be as consistent against Joe Biden. I'd imagine no. But to say that she said that you should harass Trump supporters, that's not a misrepresentation. That's an outright lie. That is an outright lie. That's not what she said, and Candace Owens knows this. But Fox News audience isn't going to take the, the time to do a really quick five-minute Google search and see what she actually said. Uh, now, But she claims Trump, he's innocent. You see, uh, Trump, he told his supporters, quote, to march peacefully and patriotically to the Capitol, and that was considered an incitement of violence. So I think that that's a little bit of an oversimplification, to say the least, about what Donald Trump said. But she claims that um, that isn't necessarily an incitement of violence or an insurrection, but what Maxine Waters said recently about the Black Lives Matter protesters and the result of the, of the uh, Derek Chauvin conviction, that is definitely tantamount to uh, an incitement of violence. Okay, let's look at what Maxine Waters said. We're looking for a guilty verdict, and we're looking to see if all of the talk that took place and has been taking place after they saw what happened to George Floyd, if nothing does not happen, then we know that we got to not only stay in the street, but we have got to fight for justice, she added. Asked what protesters should do if there is no guilty verdict, Waters said protests should continue. We've got to stay on the street and we've got to get more active. We've got to get more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they know that we mean business, she said. In an interview with the Grio that was published on Monday morning, Waters said she was nonviolent and said her remark about being confrontational was in regard to changing the justice system in the United States. I talk about confronting the justice system, confronting the policing that's going on. I'm talking about speaking up, she said. I'm talking about legislation. I'm talking about elected officials doing what needs to be done to control their budgets and pass legislation. Waters told CNN on Monday evening that her reference to confrontation was meant in the context of the civil rights movement's nonviolent history, saying that the whole civil rights movement is confrontation. So now you have the full context as to what Maxine Waters said. Now, let's try to interpret what she said in the uh, least charitable way imaginable, right? So when she says we have to stay in the streets, we have to get more confrontational, one might think, is she is she asking supporters who are in the streets to confront police officers get up in their faces because that would actually seem really bizarre for someone in her power or in her position with her stature and power to say 
because she knows what will happen. If protesters get in the faces of police officers who brutalize them regularly, they're going to be injured, possibly killed by police officers. So even if we interpret what she said in the least charitable way imaginable, it seems really unlikely that that's what she said. Still, even if you think that what Maxine Waters said is tantamount to an incitement of violence, then of course, you should definitely think that what Trump did after repeatedly lying about the election being stolen, telling his supporters to march to the Capitol and be strong, you have to think that's also an incitement of violence. But Candace Owens does not believe that Trump incited violence. She said that Trump told them to march peacefully and patriotically to the Capitol. <laughs> so Donald Trump's words definitely didn't incite a riot. Definitely peaceful. Maxine Waters, however, definitely is incitement. Uh, definitely not peaceful. She's calling for violence. But yet Candace Owens says it's the leftists who are the hypocrites. Look in the fucking mirror, Candace. Getting back to this entire conversation regarding Tucker Carlson and Candace Owens, um, I don't think that anyone is surprised by their reactions. In fact, what they uh, what they say here is actually pretty predictable. It's right in line with what we saw from other conservatives. But you can just there's this underlying um, sense of dread in their faces. I think that because it's so frequent, because cops get off on killing uh, unarmed black Americans so frequently that they weren't necessarily expecting there to actually be justice in this case. They thought that Derek Chauvin would get away, but because this case is an anomaly and because Derek Chauvin was convicted, they can't take it. They melt down like tiny little snowflakes. George Floyd's death, it catalyzed a global movement against police brutality and for black lives. And, uh, you know, for the first time, you can really see that this opened the eyes of a lot of uh, white Americans who, for the first time, were finally getting to see firsthand what black and brown communities have been saying about the police for decades. I mean, police were shameless and brazen, using chemical weapons against peaceful protesters left and right in numerous viral videos. They were pepper spraying soccer moms. And all of this is going to open their eyes. It's going to leave a lasting mark on them. But now that the case that catalyzed that movement has uh, seemingly come to an end, at least as far as Derek Chauvin is con uh, concerned, since he's going to be uh, going to prison, I don't want those folks who were awakened to think that this is the end of it. Because what happened to George Floyd and the conviction of Derek Chauvin, this is actually an anomaly. And the fact that there's justice in this case, in this instance, doesn't necessarily mean that it was a victory. Everyone in the streets uh, who marched for the first time this isn't actually the victory, and we may want a victory. We might feel like this is a victory, but in actuality, it's not a victory. And until black Americans are no longer killed by the police, until the police officers who actually uh, who kill black and brown people are held accountable, until this system is dismantled, the fight 
has to continue. And I want to read an article from the HuffPost, which really does a phenomenal job at explaining why it's the case that this Derek Chauvin conviction really is an exception to the rule. It, it truly is an anomaly. So Jessica Schulberg explains, the fact that Chauvin was arrested and charged was itself unusual. Each year, police shoot and kill roughly 1,000 people, according to the Washington Post, which has been tracking fatal shootings by on-duty police officers since 2015. But between the beginning of 2005 and June of 2019, just 104 non-federal law enforcement officers have been arrested on murder or manslaughter charges related to an on-duty shooting researchers at Bowling Green State University found. And of those 104 officers who were arrested, only 35 were convicted of a crime, 15 pleaded guilty, and 20 were convicted by a jury. Chauvin's conviction, therefore, was an anomaly. Even when police officers are convicted of killing, it is rarely on murder charges. Instead, 31 of those 35 convictions were for lesser charges, including manslaughter, negligent homicide, and reckless discharge of a firearm. Those charges generally carry more lenient sentences than a murder conviction. Racism is a key reason why, in America, police officers rarely face criminal punishment when they take another person's life. Black people are more than twice as likely as white people to be killed by the police, and white jurors may empathize less with a black victim. And although public trust in the police is at its lowest point in decades, there are still plenty of Americans who are inclined to trust a law enforcement officer's narrative and, if put on a jury, would be reluctant to convict a cop. Even jurors who aren't enthusiastically pro-law enforcement may vote not to convict because of a cop's broad legal authority to kill. In the 1980s, the Supreme Court established that police officers are allowed to use deadly force if they believe their life or the lives of others are in danger, even if evidence shows that there was never any threat. Timothy Lohman, the police officer who in 2014 shot and killed 12-year-old Tamir Rice, had reason to fear for his life, Prosecutor Timothy McGinty claimed at the time after a grand jury decided against indictment. It would have been unreasonable to expect the police officer to wait and see if the young boy's toy gun was real, McGinty said. So I really want folks to understand that there were very unique circumstances in the Derek Chauvin case that really, it sets it apart from other cases. So usually the defense, as was stated in that article that police officers use, is they had to discharge a deadly firearm because they feared for their life uh, or the lives of others. But you can't, you can't really make that argument and convince people if you have your knee on a man's neck for nine minutes. You just can't do it. So what the defense had to rely on in the case of Derek Chauvin was uh, this idea that it wasn't necessarily the knee on George Floyd's neck that killed him. Rather, it was other things, possibly a substance. But of course, that's that's not persuasive. We all saw the video. I don't think that you even have to argue in court that the knee on his neck was what killed him. I think that's pretty obvious, right? But I mean, we have due process and the rule of law. But I mean, that's the reason why Derek Chauvin couldn't use the general argument of, I, I think that my life might have been uh, in jeopardy, which is why I had to kill that person, because this was a very different case. So understand that because there was justice in this case doesn't necessarily mean that there will be justice going forward. This isn't going to be a moment where the floodgates open and more and more cops go to jail for killing black and brown Americans. That's that's not what's going to happen, unfortunately. The way we get that to happen is we have to dismantle the current system. Reimagine policing in America. 
And this is why, regardless of how you want to phrase it, defunding the police is what you have to do. You can call it whatever you want to call it, reallocating resources away from the police. But what we have to do is reimagine policing in America rather than responding to all issues in society with the one-size-fits-all approach and just throwing police at it. Maybe instead of calling the police, we call a social worker to deal with someone who's suffering from mental illness. Maybe we uh, call people who specialize uh, in, in child psychology to deal with uh, children who are being violent. It doesn't have to be police that you throw at every single situation. I mean, policing in America has led to us becoming a police state, jailing more folks per capita than any other major country. When you treat the issue of homelessness as a criminal issue, when you treat drug use and sex work as criminal issues, we're going to create a situation in society where we do have a police state, where police officers do basically rule over you know a population that is subordinate to them. And that's not the way that this is supposed to be. In an ideal world, the police are supposed to protect society, right? They're, they're public servants, but that's not what's happening. If you look at some of these cities, it's like they're an occupying military. So it's not like this case, you know, the justice wasn't good. It's not like we shouldn't celebrate that. That's not what I want the takeaway to be. But what I am saying is that if you're new to this, if your eyes were just opened up, then now is where we keep pressing further. You don't stop. You don't use this as evidence to call it quits. You keep going and acknowledge how rare this conviction is because usually this does not happen. And there's a reason why lots of folks, myself included, were very anxious and uh, were worried about the verdict because even if there was a video of what happened, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to lead to a conviction because we've seen time and again that that's not enough. That's not enough for reasons laid out in this article. But I just want folks to understand this is the beginning. And this is why some folks don't feel like this really is a victory. I mean, it is a victory. There's justice for George Floyd and his family, but he still doesn't get his life back. And the true victory will be changing the system so a life is never taken again, where we don't have to beg for justice for the victim of police brutality in the first place. You know, I often hear folks talk about how concerned they are with freedom of speech, but they never actually address the real threats to freedom of speech, which is an actual crackdown by the government on your political speech. It happens all the time as it relates to BDS and increasingly as the Black Lives Matter movement gains more prominence rather than actually addressing the concerns of people out in the streets protesting against police brutality, Republican legislatures in dozens of states literally are choosing to ignore their concerns and just try to criminalize them from speaking their mind in the first place. The first state to sign an anti-protest bill into law is Florida. Ron DeSantis did that uh, just this week. But uh, I alluded to the fact when we talked about that, that Florida isn't alone and this new article from the New York Times sheds a little bit more light on how prevalent this is 
and how egregious these laws are. So as Reed Epstein and Patricia Maze of the New York Times explains, Republican legislatures in Oklahoma and Iowa have passed bills granting immunity to drivers whose vehicles strike and injure protesters in public streets. A Republican proposal in Indiana would bar anyone convicted of unlawful assembly from holding state employment, included elected office. A Minnesota bill would prohibit those convicted of unlawful protesting from receiving student loans, unemployment benefits, or housing assistance. And in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis signed sweeping legislation this week that toughened existing laws governing public disorder and creating a harsh new level of infractions, a bill he's called the strongest anti-looting, anti-rioting, pro-law enforcement piece of legislation in the country. The measures are part of a wave of new anti-protest legislation sponsored and supported by Republicans in the 11 months since Black Lives Matter protests swept the country following the death of George Floyd. The Minneapolis police officer who killed Mr. Floyd, Derek Chauvin, was convicted on Tuesday on murder and manslaughter charges, a cathartic end to weeks of tension. But while Democrats seized on Mr. Floyd's death last May to highlight racism in policing and other forms of social injustice, Republicans have responded to a summer of protests by proposing a raft of punitive new measures governing the right to lawfully assemble. GOP lawmakers in 34 states have introduced 81 anti-protest bills during the 2021 legislative session, more than twice as many proposals as in any other year, according to Ellie Page, a senior legal advisor at the International Center for Not-for-Profit Law, which tracks legislation limiting the right to protest. So I want to repeat that. 81 anti-protest bills have been introduced in 34 states in the 2021 session. This is absolutely uh, terrifying. Anyone who claims to care about freedom of speech, who's concerned about censorship in America, this is the time to sound the alarm right now. This is absolutely horrific to see. And, uh, you know, you, you hear these details, right? You hear, oh, well, it offers immunity in some of these bills in states to people who mow down protesters, who drive their cars into crowds of people. But that can't be correct. That has to be hyperbole. There's no way that that's real, right? Actually, it's literally real. It's included in Florida's bill as well, which has gone into law immediately. Now, what these laws do and what the one that Ron DeSantis signed into law does is they grant immunity to people who drive into crowds of protesters and literally kill them by shielding them from lawsuits and criminal penalties so long as the person who drives into the crowd of protesters, they claim that it was because of self-defense. That's literally how they're justifying this. So in other words, the neo-Nazi who drove into a crowd of protesters in Charlottesville that killed Heather Heyer, all he had to do if he lived in a state with one of these laws is say, it was self-defense. I know that there's video footage of me driving into a crowd of protesters, but you know what? I felt threatened. I felt like this mob was coming after me and I, I had no choice but to drive into them to stop them from attacking me. Now, what's funny is that the lawmakers in Florida will defend this provision here and they'll say, no, 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 that's different actually because um, the individual, the neo-Nazi specifically who drove his car into a crowd of protesters in Charlottesville and killed Heather Heyer, he wasn't actually doing it out of self-defense. He was doing it because he was a bad person. He wanted to kill people. Okay, first of all, how exactly are you going to prove that? Second of all, 
do you not understand how you're incentivizing driving cars into protesters by Republicans who think that these folks are are terrible, they're the mob? I mean, look at that gun-toting couple that threatened to shoot protesters that were marching to a governor's mansion. Folks around this country clutch their pearls as they see these protests, and they want to see violence be done to folks. I mean, look at how many people defended Kyle Rittenhouse. So what you're doing is you're giving these folks an excuse, permission essentially, to kill protesters. It's unbelievable. It's insane. Folks claim to care about freedom of speech, and they're not talking about this? Unreal. Now, this is less controversial than it should be because, you know, they can... They can point to all of the rowdy protests, the rioting, the looting, and they could say, look, we're just solving a problem. We're responding to an issue. But if you are buying into that frame, understand that you're being duped by a media that has an incentive to publish sensationalist content. Most of the Black Lives Matter protests are actually overwhelmingly peaceful. But which one do you think a news organization like CNN or Fox News is going to want to play. The one where there's violence, which will attract eyeballs, which will in turn attract advertisers, or this boring, peaceful march where people are just chanting justice. I think we know the answer to that. And don't take my word for it. Take the word of analysts at the Washington Post, who in 2020, they looked at more than 7,300 protests, and here's what they determined. The overall levels of violence and property destruction were low, and most of the violence that did take place was, in fact, directed against the Black Lives Matter protesters. In short, our data suggests 96.3% of events involved no property damage or police injuries, and in 97.7% of events, no injuries were reported among participants, bystanders, or police. In other words, because the media has led folks to believe that these Black Lives Matter protests are overwhelmingly violent, well, maybe this type of legislation is justified. Now, how they try to justify giving immunity to people who drive their cars into crowds of protesters, that's a different story. But when folks are afraid and they think, oh my God, these protests really are violent and we've got to do something. I mean, maybe I support the First Amendment, but we've got to do something, right? You're giving the government permission to do things like this. And guess what? You might not like the Black Lives Matter protests, but this does cut both ways. Republicans that want to protest, if you live in a Democratic-controlled state that institutes uh, more regulations on guns, for example, well, guess what? This can be applied to you just as easily. Now, luckily for you, most cops are uh, Republicans and conservatives, so they're probably not going to crack down on, on you so much as they crack down on Black Lives Matter protesters, but still understand the implications of this law and how it affects everyone equally. You might think that this is a gotcha to the Black Lives Matter protesters who have been demonized, but this is, make no mistake about it, further erosion of the First Amendment. And the folks who aren't talking about this but purport to care about censorship and freedom of speech in America, they're frauds if they're, they're not sounding the alarm right now about this issue. Dave Rubin is a very stupid person, but I think he's at least smart enough to realize that his right-wing audience that used to enjoy basic conservative arguments, 
they're shifting further and further to the right. I think that the right in America is collectively shifting further and further to the right. And if you're a political commentator on the right and you want to satiate their appetite for right-wing commentary, you've got to get a little bit more extreme yourself. You can't just use these old uh, arguments about taxes and small government. You actually have to get a little bit more racist, be a little bit more explicit in the way you pander and uh, appeal to racists and white supremacists. And this is what we're going to see Dave Rubin do for, I think, the first time. So he's not going to use a new argument, right? He's going to deny institution, institutional racism in this clip that we're about to watch. And he's done this before, so it's not new. But what we're going to see here is he's going to tweak his argument, tweak the rhetoric that he uses, change some words ever so slightly so you can barely notice. But this shift is just enough to appeal more directly to a very specific group of people. White nationalists. And if you accept his argument if you buy what he's selling you then the implication is oh my god white people are under attack i mean this is uh tucker carlson's grift lately right there's uh the great replacement and whites are being erased so if you listen to what dave rubin is saying and tucker carlson you start to really form this idea in your head that oh my god if white people are under attack what do we do it's almost like we need our own state maybe a white ethno state Unfortunately for Dave Rubin, uh, I don't think that he himself wants this since gays are not welcome, uh, but I don't necessarily think that his rhetoric, in his opinion, is going to lead to his supporters, his viewers wanting this, because I think that he believes there's a limit to the right's radicalization, right? You can only shift so far to the right and then you hit a wall, except as we've seen with Donald Trump over the last year, there is no wall. Trump threatened to use the Insurrection Act to violently crush protests, and they wanted that to happen. Republican legislatures across the country are cracking down on voting rights, criminalizing protests, and Republicans love that. So you only become, uh, you know, so extreme to where you just start outright advocating for authoritarianism and democracy is no longer compatible with your ideology. And that's what we're seeing from right-wingers, and I don't think that Dave Rubin even realizes that he is contributing to this. You know, it, it might be subconscious, but he knows that he's got he's to gotta get a little bit more extreme to stay relevant. And uh, this is what we're going to see in this clip. Take a look. Man, well, first off, I want to congratulate AOC because we played a video of her yesterday where she had complete word salad and nothing she said made anything close to any sort of sensible sentence. So, I'll give you credit where it's due, lady. Um, but, meaning that she did string together a couple words that kind of made sense there, but it was all drivel, everything that she said there. First off, we do not have systemic and institutional racism. There are no laws in the United States that are racist against any one person. By the way, I do believe that the woke left, that the progressives will instigate laws that will be racist against people. They will start having anti-white laws. This is not a crazy conspiracy theory. There are four quotas already. We know that they don't want a certain amount of Asian people because they're overrepresented at Harvard. Well, these are the places where do all these bad ideas that leak out into society, they start at the university level. So if you're going to say, we in the government, we are gonna have diversity and inclusion departments where we are going to hire based on the color of skin, then you are going to 
discriminate against a certain set of people, which in most cases will be white people, right? It will mostly be white people. It will be Asian people as well, obviously. Now, this clip was posted to Twitter by Jason Campbell, and I don't know what AOC clip in particular Dave Rubin is referencing. Um, I think that if you say sometimes AOC is not clear and even uses uh, word salad to describe things, uh, I think that that's fair, right? The Israel-Palestine interview comes to mind. I want her to do better. I want her to do uh, more research and become more well-versed to really speak intelligently about these very important issues related to foreign policy, Israel-Palestine. Having said all of that, though, if I'm Dave Rubin and I spew nonsense and vomit out the dumbest, most banal bullshit on a daily basis, am I ever going to point out somebody else's word salad and stupidity? Mm -mm. I'm keeping my mouth shut about that. Because Dave Rubin, how many times have we clowned on him for not just making incoherent arguments, but just saying things that are downright fucking stupid. I mean, this is the man who coined the term high-level ideas. He literally said, my brain is going into recovery mode from taking in so many important high-level ideas. Who says things like that? That's stupid. That's weird. Ideas. So uh, he should never, ever criticize anyone else for having word salad uh, until he stops vomiting out word salad himself. But moving on to the substance of his argument here, you have to be a simpleton to accept his argument. So he denies the existence of institutional and systemic racism. And the basis for that, the grounds to deny the existence of institutional racism is because there's no law on the books in America that explicitly is racist. There's no law that says black people can make $6 an hour, whereas white people can make $7.25 an hour because white people are superior. There's no law of that nature. Except the world is not black and white, and this analysis, to even say that it's elementary, would be a little bit of an insult to elementary school children, because I think even they have more rational and critical thinking skills than that. So, to Dave Rubin, he can see our entire drug war, our racist criminal justice system, he can see that even though whites and blacks use drugs at comparable rates, blacks are statistically much, much more likely to get jailed for doing drugs than their white peers. But you see, that's not actually evidence of institutional racism because the drug laws in America don't specifically say that police officers have to lock up blacks more so than, than white people. Until it says that, then sorry, you've got no evidence of institutional racism, wash your hands, case closed. There's no other macro or micro factors you have to look into. We don't have to look at socioeconomic conditions, whether or not police officers uh, patrol black and brown communities at higher rates than white communities and wealthier communities. All of that is, uh, is moot because the law doesn't say anything that leads us to believe it's explicitly racist. And even if the outcome itself is racist, the law doesn't say that uh, it's racist, so case closed, checkmate. Who thinks like this? This is idiotic logic. It's the lack of logic. It's the absence of logic. It's so irrational and stupid to think this way that there's no way he actually believes this. Like, this is a man that used to be a liberal. So I think that he knows at least some of the details, some of the arguments, some of the rationalizations that prove 
that institutional racism is a thing because it is but i i don't know maybe he's playing more of a character maybe he's playing up his ignorance i'm not sure but either way it's fucking dumb now um he says by the way I do believe the woke left, the progressives will instigate laws that will be racist against people. They will start having anti-white laws. Now, I need you to understand that saying anti-white, that is a change, right? It might be subtle, and a lot of folks might not notice it, but he's not saying maybe we'll start seeing reverse racism. He's invoking the white identity very specifically, and yes, he does claim to be against identity politics uh, frequently, but he's using the word white, and that's intentional. That's very, very intentional, because he's speaking to white people. Hey, you're under attack, and the evidence, well, he doesn't have much evidence, but the one example he cites is affirmative action. And it's convenient that he denies the existence of institutional racism because contrary to popular belief, affirmative action is about addressing institutional racism. It's not about advantaging or privileging black and brown and minority communities against white Americans. What affirmative action aims to do is make education and jobs more equitable. Make it so that way historically disadvantaged communities who didn't have access to capital, didn't have access to opportunities to actually find well-paying jobs and get a college education, make sure they actually have a fighting chance. And so it doesn't mean that if you apply to a college and if you are African-American, you're going to get admitted over a white person. I mean, there were cases litigated uh, to the Supreme Court that absolutely dispelled this dumb fuckery. What it means is that if you are from a marginalized community, then your identity can be part of the cluster of qualifications when used to determine your admittance into an institution or whether or not you're going to be hired as part of a job. So it's not just, oh, hey, you're black. Welcome. You're hired. That's not the way that affirmative action actually works in practice. It's, okay, this person studied really hard. They did a lot of extracurricular activity. Uh, they volunteered. It seems like they're, they're really, uh, their attendance was phenomenal in high school. And also they happened to be from a historically disadvantaged group whose family didn't have uh, many opportunities. Uh, that's another consideration. That's great. That's another uh, benefit to uh, accepting this individual. That's the way that it works in practice. But simpletons like Dave Rubin take it as, uh, this is reverse racism. This is anti-white. <laughs> it's a caveman argument and it's fucking dumb. It's as dumb as it sounds. Dave Rubin is, uh, if anything uh, related to politics goes a little bit deeper than the surface level, he checks out. You can't go deeper than the surface level. Just analyze everything at face value, take away uh, what you think is the most obvious, even though it's the dumbest conclusion, and uh, that's it. You you rest your case. That's, that's his level of political analysis. It's, it's a Marjorie Taylor Greene level of political analysis. Um. And I love how he, he very frequently on his program, he attacks the so-called woke left. Hey, Dave, uh, who was it again that fought for you to get the right to marry a man? Was it your buddy Glenn Beck? Was it any of your right-wing pals, Candace Owens, Ben Shapiro? They absolutely did not. And they still don't support your right to marry. So you should thank the woke left 
for making sure that you're a little bit more equal. And the tacit reverse racism argument that you're using, Dave, to pander to white nationalists, this is what your right-wing buddies still use against the LGBTQ plus community, your own community, dummy. Do you know why Mike Huckabee is against the Equality Act? It's because he says that it will grant gays special rights. And with these special rights, they're going to be on a higher footing than their heterosexual and cisgender counterparts. So because businesses in America, if the Equality Act were to pass, could no longer discriminate on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation, that's actually special rights. And because the LGBTQ plus community is getting these special rights. We're actually the ones who are getting oppressed. Businesses are being discriminated against if they can't discriminate on the basis of gender identity and sexual orientation. And if that sounds familiar, it's because this is the same argument that Dave Rubin repeatedly uses against affirmative action. It's the same logic behind him denying institutional racism. Now, Dave Rubin, conveniently enough, he probably wouldn't support the Equality Act because he said before that if there was some uh, business owner that was Christian and didn't want to bake him and his husband a cake for whatever, uh, that he'd just go to another uh, cake uh, or baker, whatever, a cake decorator. Uh, except you live in California. You live in Southern California, don't you? in a very rich area, I don't think you're going to run into issues. So it's really easy for you to talk the talk when you haven't walked the walk. You haven't lived as a gay man who's out and proud in Mississippi or Alabama. That's who laws like the Equality Act would actually affect. But getting back to his point uh, and getting back to this discussion about, quote, anti-white policies and reverse racism, what this really is about is if we end institutional racism... And if we make it so that way black Americans are on more equal footing with whites, not given special rights, just equality, then that's bad for white people like Dave Rubin who want to sit at the tippy top of the social hierarchy. I mean, not having more privilege than black Americans in every single conceivable way, to them, that's oppression. To them, that makes them the victim. To them, they cry and they claim it's reverse racism. Affirmative action is reverse racism because I no longer am privileged over people who are historically denied to what I haven't had as much as uh, of an issue accessing. So Dave Rubin is a fucking clown who uh, doesn't realize what he's doing here. You might want to pander to white nationalists to make a few bucks, but if right-wingers got what they wanted, if your ideology was imposed on society, your ideology would exclude you, dipshit. It would exclude your husband. So I, I just, I don't understand how, given his position as a gay man, he could be so uh, obtuse about this, but I don't necessarily think he uh, is unaware of it. I think he's being purposefully obtuse because right now, at least, it's really convenient because you could shill for the right and you could buy a mansion. You can uh, have probably some really fancy luxury cars. You could live the life of celebrities. Uh, but in the end... What he's doing is damage, and even though he's a dumbass, he's at least aware that he is hurting himself, and he has to live with that every single day. And I don't think any amount of money can erase that from somebody's conscience. So in an address to the Arizona Chamber of Commerce, Kirsten Cinema was asked about 
whether or not she'd support the PRO Act, which is the bill that would expand upon unionization in the United States, make it easier for workers to form unions. And her answer here, I mean, I'm honestly shocked that she had the audacity to admit this, but nonetheless, uh, she just told on herself. She said very clearly who she takes her marching orders from. And spoiler alert, it's not her constituents. There is some concern right now in the business community, as you've probably heard, uh, an issue that our friends at the Arizona chapter of the Associated General Contractors wanted me to bring up with you, that uh, there was a bill that passed the House, the PRO Act. Uh, give us a sense, as this bill makes its way to the Senate, where you uh, intend to be on this. We know it's an evolving issue. And if you'd be willing to have a a discussion with employers in Arizona about our concerns about this bill being a disruption to the workplace and to our business environment. Well, I would welcome such a discussion. As folks who are listening today know, the way I make decisions on behalf of Arizona and for our constituents is by listening to the business leaders who will be impacted by these decisions. So I want to discuss this legislation and I want to know the impact it would have on Arizona jobs and the economy. Now, there hasn't been any movement on the PRO Act yet in the United States Senate, but I can tell you that many Arizona businesses have already reached out to my office and I know have discussed the concerns that they have with the PRO Act with some of the folks who are on our call today. Now, right now, this legislation is not scheduled to become to come before the full Senate, but we are watching carefully because some of the PRO Act provisions, especially in regards to the worker classification test for independent contractors, could become a part of other legislative ideas. So I would ask all the members who are joining us today to please stay involved with my office and help me by sharing information about how this would impact you and your company so that I can go back to Senate uh, leadership and folks on both sides of the aisle to discuss the concerns that Arizona businesses have. Wow. Not surprising, but she effectively just told you that she's corrupt. She doesn't listen to her constituents, the people that got her elected. She actually listens to the corporations that lord over her constituents. Unless my donors say this is a good idea, I won't support it. And that's effectively what she's saying here, right? I speak with business leaders, i.e. large corporations, and if they don't like something, I'm not going to do it. And I'm even watching to make sure that parts of the PRO Act don't get taken out and, you know, hidden in other pieces of legislation, such as clauses related to independent contractors and what have you. This is someone who is just straight up representing corporate America. And she might retort if this, you know, gets more viral by saying, you know, I'm addressing small businesses. That is code for I'm representing corporate America. Wow. I mean, I can't say that I'm surprised, honestly, but it's still a little bit jarring to see a politician just admit, no, I'm completely beholden to business leaders. And this isn't uh, necessarily surprising to folks who are astute and who's been following politics, because according to a 2014 Princeton University study that I cite all the time by Drs. Gillens and Page, they found that when it comes to policy outcomes, when you look at what citizens want, we have a statistically insignificant impact on policy outcomes, whereas economic elites, business interests, special interests, they actually do dictate what's, what gets passed into law. She's just demonstrating exactly how this process works, how a bill becomes a law. It's not what we were taught on Schoolhouse Rock, right? I wish it were that simple. 
It is whatever corporate America wants. So honestly, there's no use for Kirsten Cinema here. She should just resign, let Walmart take her position, let uh, Target take her position, Amazon take her position, because if corporations are people in this twisted late stage capitalist society, then we have no use for her. Just let Walmart take over for you. Let the CEO of some company fill in for you. You're, you're just a proxy for them. Like, what is the point? Why would you get involved in politics if you only want to represent business leaders? What's the point? When she ran, even though she ran as a moderate and, you know, she she essentially described herself as a mansion type Democrat, she still spoke the language that a lot of liberals use. Well, you know, I want to make sure that more people have a chance and I, I'm focused on equitability. But now she's just full mask off. No, I represent the uh, business leaders and I'm going to discuss what they want, not actually have a meeting with workers, not actually speak with my constituents. I want to see what business leaders want. When it comes to constituents, fuck off. I'll wear a ring telling you to fuck off. But when it comes to business leaders, I definitely want to hear what you have to say. And please be sure to contribute to my campaign. It's it's repulsive. It, it's sickening, but it is exactly what we've come to expect from a corrupt politician in America. Unfortunately, this is common. Like I want to say that this is really something that's an anomaly, but it's not. What's rare is when they admit that they're corrupt. And that's what we got from Kirsten Cinema. So we saw Kirsten Cinema recently explain to the Arizona Chamber of Commerce that when she's considering which legislation to support and not support, you know, she speaks to the business leaders and see, uh, sees what they think she should do. That's who she is concerned with. Uh, but also, uh, Kirsten Cinema and her pal, Joe Manchin, attended a closed-door meeting with a lobbying firm, the National Restaurant Association, the NRA. Not that NRA, but a different NRA that's also very nefarious, and they fight against worker rights. And we got some inside information as to what was said at this closed-door meeting, and Joe Manchin was uh, chumming it up with the, uh, the lobbying group here. And he also mocked the $15 an hour minimum wage and name-dropped Bernie Sanders and explained how awesome it was that Bernie Sanders fighting for a $15 an hour minimum wage, it's stupid that he doesn't accept the crumbs that Joe Manchin is offering to him. So as Joel Warner and Andrew Perez of the Daily Post report, when Joe Manchin told attendees at the National Restaurant Association National Conference on Tuesday that the minimum wage shouldn't be more than $11 an hour and there should still be a sub-minimum wage for tipped workers, the group's chief lobbyist couldn't contain his excitement. From your lips to God ears, exclaimed Sean Kennedy, the NRA's executive vice president of public affairs, who spoke with a Democratic senator from West Virginia as part of a virtual panel entitled Seeking Unity, Conversations on Finding Bipartisan Solutions. The NRA is a powerful, sprawling lobbying operation with $289 million in revenue in 2018 and state affiliates around the country. The organization has been leading the charge to block a federal $15 an hour minimum wage and is also fighting a separate Democratic effort to make it easier for workers to form unions. Manchin, along with Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema, were added to the NRA conference lineup after they joined 
joined six other Democrats in blocking an attempt by Senator Bernie Sanders to add a $15 an hour minimum wage provision to the Democrats' COVID-19 relief legislation in March. Manchin and Sinema's statements at the conference, reportedly attended by several hundred restaurant operators from around the country, pull back the current on what they say to corporate interests when they're out of the public eye. The NRA event, billed as off-the-record and closed to press, was the association's annual public affairs conference, which means it was designed for lobbyists and focused on shaping legislation. During his talk, Manchin specifically took aim at Sanders for continuing to push for a $15 an hour minimum wage. Quote, we've been having meetings on minimum wage, and I can't for the life of me understand why they don't take a win on $11 an hour, he said. Bernie Sanders is totally committed in his heart and soul that $15 an hour is the way to go. Well, it might be the way to go, Bernie, but it ain't going to go. You don't have the votes for it. It's not going to happen. So they're going to walk away with their pride saying we fought for 15, got nothing. In response, Kennedy gushed to Manchin. You and your staff have been absolutely amazing in working with small businesses and including the National Restaurant Association, and finding a common-sense path so we can wrap up that aspect just saying thank you. <coughs> Had to vomit for a second. Um, That's just... <sighs> it's infuriating. And also, I should add that uh, during this event, Joe Manchin reiterated his opposition to abolishing the filibuster. Yeah, not too surprising. Understand what Joe Manchin is saying with regard to Bernie Sanders. Joe Manchin is saying, Bernie Sanders knows that I couldn't care less if we raise the federal minimum wage at all, but I'm only going to budge on $11 an hour. That's the furthest that I'm willing to go. So he could take it or leave it. I'm fine with no federal minimum wage increase. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, I'm willing to play with the lives of millions of workers and give them nothing if you don't cave to my demand and just give them a little bit more crumbs. Understand that Back in 2016, even Hillary Clinton supported a $12 an hour minimum wage, which was insufficient. But Joe Manchin won't even go to what uh, corporate Democrats like Hillary Clinton supported years ago. It's astonishing. And he's throwing around his weight here because he knows that Bernie Sanders most likely is going to have to cave to his demands because he's correct about the fact that, you know, if Bernie doesn't cave, then they're going to walk away with nothing. And Bernie Sanders knows that obviously $11 is better than $7 an hour, but he's trying to use the leverage that he has as budget committee chairman to at least try to get 15 before caving, right? But Bernie is willing to cave and compromise, not necessarily because he believes that's what should happen, but because he knows Joe Manchin is a ghoul and he couldn't care less if people actually fucking starve to death on the streets. He couldn't care less. See, when you're playing chicken with someone who doesn't care about the lives of working Americans, you're going to lose every single time. Because you can try to huff and puff, you can try to hold your ground, but Joe Manchin, you're going to say, mm, $11. Bernie can say, okay, well, what about 13 Joe Manchin says, 11 because understand, Joe Manchin has absolutely no incentive whatsoever to even raise it to 11. 
So him just proposing 11, he's doing that to make it seem as if he's more reasonable, when that is unreasonable. But he's saying, look, you want to raise the minimum wage? Well, um, $11 an hour. And if you don't want that, okay, that's fine. We'll keep it at $7.25. That's fine too. Bernie knows that this is really an untenable situation. The minimum wage needs to be increased, but getting folks like Joe Manchin who have nothing to lose to budge, it's tough. And Joe Manchin knows that. And in this meeting with lobbyists, he's gloating about that, essentially laughing about the fact with his corporate donors that, look, <laughs> I got these leftists like Bernie Sanders backed into a corner because they really, really want a minimum wage increase. I couldn't care less. I don't give a shit about the minimum wage, right? But I told them 11. And if they don't cave to my demands, they get jack fucking shit. Isn't that funny? LOL. I have so much power. I love playing with people's lives. Now, look, what I will say about Joe Manchin, and I've said this before, and I think that this was demonstrated this week when he caved when it comes to the PRO Act. Joe Manchin, I think probably unlike Kirsten Cinema, is much more malleable. He does succumb to public pressure easier. That's what he's demonstrated time and again. So what we have to do is make sure that we hold Joe Manchin accountable. Keep the public pressure on Joe Manchin. Make sure that he doesn't just com comfortably oppose everything that Bernie Sanders and the leftists in the Senate, the one or two that exist, uh, make sure that he does feel pressure, right? Make sure that he knows that the public is going to be against him as he actively fights against us. So, it, look, I mean, the takeaway here is that folks like Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, these are soulless ghouls. They absolutely, unapologetically, and shamelessly represent their corporate donors, and they don't care how bad the situation in the country gets. Their concern is not to serve the constituents who put them in office. Their concern is to serve the donors that helped them get elected. And I wish it were that simple, but you can tell from this meeting that he actually gets a little bit of sick pleasure out of uh, swinging his dick around and fucking over American workers. It's, it's truly just grotesque, and Joe Manchin is one of the biggest pieces of shit in, in Congress. And <laughs> there's a lot of competition, right? But this is a terrible human being who absolutely deserves no respect and absolutely should feel the wrath of his constituents. Come election time, they should be bombarding his office with phone calls. This is what he's saying to you. Like, he's trying to boast about how he won one over when it comes to him versus Bernie Sanders. But this isn't really about Bernie Sanders. Bernie doesn't need $15 an hour. This is about you. And this really isn't about Joe Manchin clowning on and mocking Bernie Sanders. This is him spitting in your eye as a voter, as a worker. We shouldn't take this lying down. We should absolutely resist it because this is disgusting. So I've previously talked about why the PRO Act is so important on this channel before, but for those of you unfamiliar with this legislation and specifically what it would do to promote unionization, I want to read to you real quick this paragraph from a Jacobin article written by Mindy Iser who explains why this is so important. She explains the PRO Act is the most sweeping pro-labor legislation in decades. It would effectively end anti-union right-to-work laws currently on the books in 28 states, institute financial penalties on employers that retaliate against workers who 
organize, prohibit employers' captive audience meetings, require employers to bargain a first contract in good faith, repeal the prohibition on secondary boycotts, an instrument of worker solidarity banned since the late 1940s, and bar employers from permanently replacing strikers. So, needless to say, this is incredibly important. It is crucial. This could be a game changer for worker rights in the United States of America, and it passed the House of Representatives in early March. The president, Joe Biden, supports this legislation. So the question is, what's going on? What's the holdup? Well, of course, the Senate is still needing to pass this, and it hasn't yet passed because there are a number of holdouts within the Democratic Party who are against it. Can you take a guess as to who those holdouts are? Of course, it's the usual suspects. Kirsten Cinema, of course, being one of them, and after she gleefully voted down a $15 an hour minimum wage, she joined her pals Rahm Emanuel and Joe Manchin to headline an event for the National Restaurant Association, which, for those of you who don't know, this is a lobbying group who's against unions, who's against the $15 an hour minimum wage, and this is who Kirsten Cinema is palling around with, and after she did all of that, after she stuck it to workers, she then posted a picture of herself on Instagram sipping on a drink with another coded message to uh, workers, I'm guessing. Fuck off. So if it wasn't already bad enough that these ghouls refused to support policies that would help struggling Americans, Kirsten Cinema goes out of her way to make matters worse and throw it in your face that she doesn't care that you're struggling, right? She gleefully votes down the minimum wage and after receiving backlash, she puts on a ring that says, fuck off, presumably to all of the haters, the haters who dared to pressure her to do her job and represent the people who voted her in office. It's it just, it's insufferable. It's ridiculous. So when she's that brazen, when she refuses to support anything in spite of public backlash, the question is, is there any usefulness in even trying to put pressure on her? And the answer to that is yes, because guess what? Even though she's resistant to change, even though she's wearing her cute little rings and colorful hats, and she's trying to tell you to go fuck yourself if you're mad at her for voting down a $15 an hour minimum wage, public pressure does work. Because Angus King, who was against the PRO Act, received a lot of public pressure, lots and lots of calls to his office, and guess what? He had a change of heart. And even Kirsten Cinema's buddy, Joe Manchin, all of a sudden announced on Monday that he too is having a change of heart. But don't take my word for it, take his word for it. I'm pleased to announce that I am co-sponsoring the PRO Act. 50% of unions fell in their first year of organizing. This legislation will level the playing field. I look forward to working with my colleagues on both sides of the aisle to move this bill through a legislative process. Now, does that sort of look like a hostage video? Yes. Um, regardless, though, of the presentation, pressure works. One by one, we are chipping away at the holdouts. And now it's the case that there's only a couple of holdouts left. And as Ken Klippenstein explains, those three individuals include Kirsten Cinema, Mark Warner, and Mark Kelly. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to join the cause and put pressure on these folks because this is unacceptable. If Kirsten Cinema isn't supporting a $15 an hour minimum wage, that's terrible. She needs to change her mind on that. But to not support the PRO Act means that you don't want them to have a high wage and you don't even want them to have the opportunity to negotiate their wages because currently with this employer-employee dichotomy that we're seeing, 
it doesn't give workers any leverage at all. But having unions actually levels the playing field at least a little bit. So we're going to demand that these folks actually change their mind. So you can give Kirsten Cinema a call at 202-224-4521. Mark Warner's phone number is 202-224-2023. Mark Kelly's phone number is 202-224-2235. And whenever I share phone numbers, I get some messages from folks saying, look, I appreciate the fact that public pressure actually does make a difference, but I'm a little bit awkward. I'm a little bit nervous to speak to anyone. Here's what I'll say. Most of the time, I'd say nine times out of 10, when you call these numbers, you get directed to voicemail, so you can leave a voice message. It's a lot less pressure, but really, you're just going to speak to a staffer. You're never going to actually talk to the senator themselves, uh, and they're just going to take down your message, right? It's it's not bad. I'm going to call Kirsten Cinema because she's the one who's gotten on my nerves the most, um, on camera, just to kind of give you a little template as to what uh, you can say. It really, I mean, I don't even know what I'm going to say as I call, but it's not, there's not really much pressure to just calling and leaving a message or telling the staffer that you demand that they support a policy like the PRO Act that's important for workers. Thank you for calling the office of Senator Kirsten Cinema. Please leave a brief message with your name. Doesn't even go. To a person. And we will get back to you as soon as we can. Thank you and have a great day. Hi, uh, I know that Kirsten Cinema doesn't like poor people. In fact, she hates poor people and she takes every opportunity she has to rub it in our faces that she doesn't care about us. And I, I know that she probably gets off on the fact that poor people are starving and dying across this country because she refuses to, to support policies that help people. But if she could just do one thing, it would make a huge difference in the lives of her constituents and Americans all across the country. If she co-sponsored the PRO Act, that would be a game changer for worker rights in America. And if she can't even support basic legislation that does the bare minimum to embolden workers a little bit in this country, then why is she even there? What is the point of her being an elected official? Why is she a Democrat? Just join the Republicans. I mean, she was against the $15 an hour minimum wage and gleefully voted it down. But if you can't even support the PRO Act, I mean, unions are supposed to be the Democratic Party's bread and butter. This is a former Green Party member. If she can't support the PRO Act, then, uh, not only are we going to do everything in our power to defeat her in the next election, but we will continue to apply pressure on her until she buckles because it is inexcusable that any Democrat would be against the PRO Act, would be against the right to organize in the United States of America. And I know that she's going to have to check with her donors first because they really don't like the fact that she'd do anything to support workers, but she needs to at least do this one thing if she wants the pressure to be a little bit less on her. So um, tell her that we demand she supports this. Otherwise, we will make sure that her career comes to an end in the Senate. Thank you very much. Uh, I would recommend that you be more concise than me. I always end up just ranting whenever I call politicians. But, you know, the message is support the PRO Act. You could just call and say, I demand that Senator Sinema supports the PRO Act. And that's it. You can hang up. It's that simple. So public pressure works, and we've got to make sure to even do small things like this to try to get their attention and move them in the right direction.
So if the crackdown on BDS in state legislatures across the country wasn't already disturbing enough, if you actually care about the First Amendment and freedom of speech, we are now seeing a new wave of legislation intended to effectively criminalize protesting. Now, this is in direct response to the George Floyd protests that broke out last May. Now, think about this. Rather than trying to actually grapple with the demands of protesters and meet some of the criteria that they're looking for, even make an attempt in any way to reform police departments, what are some legislatures choosing to do? They're choosing to just silence the folks who are speaking out against our ruthless, racist criminal justice system. And Ron DeSantis of Florida just signed a bill that does that. So as Jake Johnson of Common Dreams reports, Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis on Monday signed into law a bill that civil rights groups warn is designed to crack down on peaceful demonstrations and criminalize dissent by redefining rioting in an overboard way and creating draconian new felonies for protest-related offenses. While DeSantis and the bill's Republican sponsors in the Florida legislature present HB1 as a response to the attack on the U.S. Capitol by a mob of Trump supporters earlier this year, critics say the measure, crafted well before the January 6th attack, is in fact a reaction against the racial justice protests that followed the police killing of George Floyd last May. Let's be clear, this is not an anti-riot bill, regardless of what supporters claim, Micah Kubik, executive director at the ACLU of Florida, said in a statement Monday. It is a bill that criminalizes peaceful protest and the impact HB1 will have on Floridians cannot be disputed. Each and every provision harkens back to Jim Crow. Kubik went on to warn that under the new law, which is part of a wave of similar Republican measures under consideration nationwide, protesters could be arrested and charged with a felony if others at a protest or gathering become violent or disorderly, even if they themselves didn't. According to the South Florida Sun Sentinel, HB1 defines rioting as a public disturbance by at least three people with common intent to mutually assist each other in disorderly and violent conduct. So the implications of this are broad and the text of this legislation is incredibly vague and that's the point. It's up to the discretion of police officers. They get to determine unilaterally so what constitutes a riot. And if you're wondering how this could be used against protesters, even if they're peaceful, Amelia Pollard of The American Prospect did a really good uh, breakdown of this. So she writes, the legislation is purposefully vague, which gives law enforcement even more insidious powers. Almost any type of protest is grounds for arrest. Under the bill, peaceful protesters could face felony charges and up to five years in prison if a rally becomes violent through no fault of their own. ACLU lawyers say the sweeping protection of memorials and monuments is also chilling. Pulling down a Confederate flag, for instance, could lead to felony charges and 15 years in prison. And the bill's protection of violent counter-protesters from civil lawsuits means that even if protesters are injured but not charged, they would have no recourse in the courts. So let's be very clear about what this is. This is an anti-protest bill. This is not a bill to stop rioting. This is incredibly transparent. This is an attempt to send a message to everyone in Florida. Hey, if you don't like that black and brown people are being targeted by the police and racially profiled, uh, if you protest, guess what's going to happen? If that protest becomes violent or even a little bit too disorderly, depending on how we define disorderly conduct, you might be held legally liable yourself, even if through no fault of your own, 
that protest got violent. Even if you were peaceful, you're still maybe associated. Maybe we say that you are mutually assisting people to be disorderly. So, uh, yeah, you're going to be legally penalized for that. This is effectively the criminalization of protests. To have text that broad, anything can basically be defined as a riot now. This is very clearly unconstitutional, and this isn't going to survive a challenge if it ever made it to the Supreme Court. But lower courts, stacked with pro-Trump judges, could very well actually legitimize this. Uh, but this is obviously a threat to free speech. And it shows you that Republicans are becoming increasingly blatant in their uh, hate of democracy. I mean, in Georgia, they cracked down on voting rights to make it harder to vote. And in Florida now, they're making it harder to protest, trying to discourage people from protesting because those folks who may not want to go to jail or be held legally accountable might think, well, shit, if this protest becomes even a little bit too disorderly, if, you know, the crowd is uh, demanded to disperse and they don't do it on time and the police start cracking down, I, even though I might want to be there, kind of don't want to show up because I don't want to go to jail. This is very clearly undemocratic. This is a threat to freedom of speech. And I'm wondering, where are all of my free speech warriors? Anyone who is in my mentions on Twitter who calls me a pro-censorship authoritarian because I thought that Trump should rightfully be banned from Twitter for inciting an insurrection, all of those folks conspicuously are silent on this particular issue. It's weird. It's almost like freedom of speech means that I can have a Twitter account, but when the government actually cracks down on BDS or cracks down on protests, all of a sudden, the usual free speech proponents are nowhere to be found. This is a gigantic threat to freedom of speech. If this were to be implemented in more states across the country, do you understand what this could mean for your right as an American citizen to speak out and protest? This isn't just about Black Lives Matter protests. They're the targets, right? And so if you're a conservative, you might think, well, you know what? I don't like these protests because oftentimes uh, they get a little bit too, too violent. And these folks don't realize that oftentimes these uh, events are peaceful and then the police end up stirring the pot and make it into a riot, a violent protest by demanding that crowds disperse and then they use tear gas. So <laughs> you might not like Black Lives Matter, right? You may be against these, uh, these types of events, but guess what happens? This cuts both ways. If you're a Trump supporter, if you are a Republican and you want to protest what your democratically controlled state is doing or what Joe Biden is doing, guess what? This is going to hurt you as well if this gets passed. And right now, it's limited to Florida. But this could catalyze a domino effect. Usually, when one state does something, other states follow suit. I mean, it happened with pot legalization, and that's a good thing. But when it comes to really nefarious, harmful pieces of legislation, like the trans bill in Arkansas, how many more states will pass it? Because Arkansas did. There were only a couple of states with anti-BDS laws, and now many states have them. So this is just the first of what is likely to be many states cracking down brazenly so on your right to protest in a supposedly free country. This is a grave threat to freedom of speech, and anyone not sounding the alarm about these types of legislative attempts across the country now, with one being successful, they don't actually care about free speech. They're frauds. 
disregard what they have to say because if you care about free speech but you're not speaking out against this unequivocally and loudly so then you're either incredibly misguided or you just you don't actually care about real threats to freedom of speech this is an attack on the first amendment brazenly so and anyone who lets this stand doesn't actually care about democracy former president george w bush war criminal was interviewed on cbs news and during this interview he called for compassion i repeat war criminal george w bush called for compassion in america take a look you ran as a compassionate conservative i did <laughs> do you believe there are compassionate conservatives today absolutely i'm one and i think there are a lot uh, the problem is, uh, w with an angry society, uh, it, it, it's hard to punch through with compassion. Mm -hmm. Is it an angry society, or is it a certain leaders and people who've stoked that anger and fear? I think there's a, that's an interesting question. Uh, I'm a big leadership guy, and, and so therefore I, I think maybe, <laughs> maybe the latter part of your question is true, that people stoke anger in order to advance their apolitical agenda. Uh, I do believe there is a more, uh, well, my dad spoke kinder and gentler, uh, and he truly believed it. And I believed in uh, unifier, not divider. And, and, and they just can't be empty slogans. You have to believe it in order to be credible. Uh, I think uh, that, yes, it's going to require leadership to help heal, heal wounds. That is rich coming from him. And let me just say, shame on the interviewer there. Because when you're interviewing George W. Bush, if you're even going to platform him at all, which I don't think anyone should be doing, but if you're going to interview George W. Bush, there's only two questions you should ever ask him. One, when can we expect you to turn yourself into international authorities to be tried for crimes against humanity? And two, how do you look yourself in the mirror knowing that you are responsible for catastrophic losses to human life? That's the only two things anyone should ever ask of this criminal who should be in prison for the rest of his life. Now, it's funny. She says, uh, you ran as a compassionate conservative. Did he, though? A compassionate conservative? Would you call it compassionate to base your entire 2004 campaign on introducing a constitutional amendment to ban same-sex marriages? Do you call that compassion to make sure that gay people in America never have the opportunity, even in their state, to get marriage equality? I mean, thankfully, he lost that battle, but do you call that compassionate? I don't call that compassionate. Someone who wanted to kick people off of welfare, partially privatize Social Security, for Wall Street, is that compassion? It's shocking that a reporter had the audacity to say this, but uh, he responds and says that he believes that there are still compassionate conservatives, and he believes that he is a compassionate conservative. That's hilarious, uh, but he adds, the problem is with an angry society. It's hard to punch through with compassion, because everyone in America... They're just so mad right now. We're all at each other's throats. Why is that, George W. Bush? Is it because the economic ideology of elites, capitalism, has absolutely decimated the population and the planet? And we all feel as if we're marching towards climate catastrophe and an apocalypse. Meanwhile, we're all miserable. People are starving. Homelessness is on the rise in America. I mean, why is it that we're angry? Well, according to him, his theory is that people are angry 
because we don't have someone who's a unifier or a divider. His dad, he claims, was a unifier. Uh, his dad, by the way, uh, groped numerous women. Doesn't sound like a unifier to me. Sounds like an actual terrible human being. Also, he says they can't be empty slogans. So when politicians speak the rhetoric of unifiers, you have to believe it in order to be credible. So when you're espousing these types of platitudes, it's not actually going to work. It's not actually going to resonate with the American population unless you really believe it to your core. That's what's going to, uh, you know, foster the spread of compassion in America. You want to know what might bring Americans together, George Bush, is if we saw you arrested, if we saw you in handcuffs, serving time behind bars with your buddy Barack Obama, with your buddy Donald Trump for committing crimes against humanity. It's just, it, it's interesting to me. It, it's so rich that he has criticisms for American society. If there are issues with American society, and there are many, one of them is that you have freedom right now. You shouldn't have freedom. You should be behind bars. But the media has gone out of their way to normalize and rehabilitate George W. Bush because Donald Trump is so bad that he makes someone like George W. Bush even seem sane. But you never normalize someone who committed atrocities to the extent that George W. Bush did. George W. Bush is a mass murderer and a war criminal. And again, any journalist who interviews him should never chum it up with him. Never ask him softball questions. The only two questions you ask him is when will you turn yourself in and how do you live with yourself? That's it. And I'm not being hyperbolic. I literally think that should be the only two questions that you ask. Because what else do we need to hear from this individual? This is a monster. Who cares what he has to say about American society and policy? I couldn't care less. All I care about when it comes to Bush-related news is that he's going to be in prison. The fact that he's not speaks to the moral depravity of our society. My Pillow CEO and pro-Trump conspiracy theorist Mike Lindell just launched his own social media website titled Frank Speech. And it's not necessarily going too smoothly. In fact, the rollout has been an unmitigated disaster, and it's not necessarily because of his incompetence, but rather he says that he was the target of a massive attack. His website has been attacked by the haters. Now, he doesn't necessarily explain what happened. Was it hacked? Was it the target of a DDoS attack? He doesn't say. He just wants you to know that he's the victim and you should feel bad for him. So to promote said social media website, he also held a 48-hour Frankathon where he promoted the website and he took calls from viewers. As you're going to see, this was a very, very bad idea because he was pranked multiple times and he fell for it each time <laughs> and he immediately cries and plays the victim whenever this happens. This is this is gold. Yeah. yeah, yeah, well, thank you, thank you. Hey, hold on, I got. I think I got a reporter beaming in. Scott, thank you for calling, and God bless you. Goodbye. Uh, hello? Hey, Mike, it's Ron with the Wall Street Journal. Yes, yes, you're live, is that okay? Oh, yeah, that's great, but Mike, I have some bad news to tell you, I'm afraid, and I wish, I hope you can share this with everybody, but unfortunately, Alexa passed away just a few minutes ago from a drug overdose. Okay, that's a, this is a prank call. This is a prank phone call. You see what they're doing, everybody? You see what they're doing, everybody? That was an attack there because I brought up this great reporter, and that was an attack. You heard it here. This is what these attack groups are doing. Prime example there. We 
Breaking news here with a guest. Hello? Hello, yes, I have Mr. Trump on standby. Are you ready? Yes. Go ahead, sir. Hello, everyone. Oh, uh, we have the president here, our real president, everyone. Hello, Mr. President. MacronShow.com, bitches. Okay. All right. All right. I Sorry, guess that folks. wasn't. I guess that was. You see what they're doing? They're attacking us. They're attacking us. And this is what, uh, I mean, that even came up. They're attacking into our phones. It came up that it, it was a legitimate, legitimate number. Call. A legitimate. I know the number's coming from. from wow. Wow. That's that's just brilliant. Um, if you didn't notice, so it, it cut to a a woman when he took the Trump phone call. The reason why we got that quick flash of her was because he was actually having a conversation with her, uh, but he cut her off mid sentence when he thought that Daddy Trump was on the phone, only to find out that it was another prank call. I love how he instinctively just cries. And plays the victim we're being attacked i don't care who you are or how crazy you are if you have a phone system where you allow live callers to call in you're going to be the subject of prank calls ask c-span how that goes ask david pakman who receives calls all the time from weirdos like this is a common occurrence and especially when you're a target when you're that batshit insane i mean did he not anticipate this now, out of curiosity, I actually went to frankspeech.com, and after taking about two minutes to load, the website was empty. It literally was an empty page with a very small video player, and uh, apparently he was live, he wasn't taking phone calls, but as I tuned in, he was spreading more conspiracy theories about the election, saying that China stole the election at the behest of Joe Biden. They flipped millions of votes from uh, Donald Trump to Joe Biden. And it is astonishing to me that he is still spreading conspiracy theories about the election because after he lied about Dominion voting machines, they literally sued him. They filed a defamation suit against him for $1.3 billion. Yes, that's billion with a B. So you think that by now he'd stop making these baseless claims, but he is brazen. And what does he do in response to Dominion? He countersues them for $1.6 billion. So they sue him for defamation. They ask for $1.3 billion. He then turns around, countersues them for $1.6 billion. I mean, what are you even going to countersue them for? Are you going to allege that you're countersuing because they stole the election? Like the very reason why they're suing you for defamation in the first place? It's just, it, it's shocking to me how brazen this guy is. But I mean, I kind of feel a little bit bad for him if I'm being honest, because you can tell that something, something is off there. Like, he doesn't necessarily seem well, and I hope that he gets the help that he needs. But regardless, even if something's wrong with him, very clearly so, I mean, in a capitalist system, if you have a lot of money, wealth directly translates into power. And when you have power, because you have money, people are going to take you seriously. People are going to bring you on their program on Newsmax, on cable news, and let you spread these harmful conspiracy theories that are damaging to our democracy. So we can't not speak out about it because you're you're very clearly crazy but nonetheless it's just i don't know what else to say like this dude is so weird he's a living meme and yeah so <laughs> i don't know what's left to say i mean he got prank called and he kind of deserved it but um in terms of whether or not i'll be making an account on his new social media website frank speech to that i say 
absolutely. Whenever it actually is more than just a blank page with a video player, I'll sign up. I'll be one of the first to sign up. Well, folks, that is absolutely everything. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of stories actually that we missed, but that's all that I have the bandwidth and mental capacity to cover. It's been a very, very eventful and uh, and draining week. It, there's been victories, there's been losses, you know, when it comes to the Florida laws, but the Derek Chauvin conviction was good news. It's been overwhelming. We'll just we'll put it that way. So. As I usually do, I'm going to uh, plug my Twitch channel here because if you want to unwind and, uh, you know, hang out, play some video games with me, head on over to twitch.tv slash humanistreport. I'll be there sometime this weekend, uh, probably Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I don't know, but uh, I'll be there, so be sure to look out for that, and I'll try to get a more consistent schedule. Also, before we leave, uh, as usual, I want to thank all of the folks who make this show possible, of our Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, and also our Twitch subs. Thank you all so much for helping the show, not just to survive, but thrive as well. I, I truly appreciate all of you, and uh, I can't ever say that enough. So uh, that's all I've got, folks. I'll see you next week. My name is Mike Figueredo. This has been The Humanist Report. Take care, everyone.